bringing faith to you and your inbox. Our daily newsletter, America Today, keeps you informed and inspired with breaking news, award-winning analysis, and spiritual reflections. Subscribe to our newsletter for free at americamag.org slash newsletters. Oh, no. Hello? <laughs> testing, testing. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, honestly, to, to, to see Zach mess up, basically all day. I know. Uh, all day, I never feel more confident than when Zach floundering. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. Like, we, we thrive off of this energy right now. That, that's, that's, that's why I do it for, for you guys. God. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it's recording locally also. All right, so I'm just going to bring my point to a close again. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It's good to be with you, Ashley, but even better to be with Olga Segura. Hey, guys. Uh, Olga, it's so good to hear your voice. Welcome back. I know. Honestly, the world the world is a complete mess, but it feels so good to be doing this again. I'm instantly transported back to our prep sessions and interview prep, so my consolation of the week. I do have to say that you left you left the show, and then it seems like the world fell apart. <laughs> it really did. It really did. I don't know what happened. I'm sorry, guys, if I somehow <laughs> caused the universe to do this. <laughs> no, we, we we can't place any of the blame on you, but we did really want you back on the show in this moment. Um, you know, when you were on Jesuitical every week, you uh, were such an essential voice on the topic of race in the Catholic Church, and you've continued to, to grow in that uh, now that you've moved on from American media. Um, and so we, we just couldn't really imagine talking about this moment in the life of the church and country without having you on. So thank you for willing to, to come back on. Of course, of course. Anything for you guys. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe that's a good place to, to start um, is mm-hmm. what have you, you've been covering the Catholic Church's response to different moments in the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Um, been pretty critical even. Um, of the church's response mm-hmm. in the past, what's been what's been done this time around? Um, maybe from uh, the church is sort of a broad word, but maybe we could start the high level. If if you've seen any difference in how maybe the hierarchy and the bishops have responded to this moment, sure. I think just the fact that we're seeing bishops like the bishop from El Paso, I won't butcher his name on Jesuitical, <laughs> but seeing someone like him join protests and seeing other priests and we're seeing a lot of nuns and all of these pictures that are constantly being shared on social media there's been a i don't know what i don't know what the energy is or what's different this time around but i see that leaders are much more willing to be at the front lines and lay catholics as well i've gotten so many people who are dming me and are like i'm from the archdiocese of for example new york or something and here are all the people who are talking about race here's what i did so i'm seeing this sort of commitment this time around and the sort of level of actually holding ourselves accountable as Catholics that I wasn't seeing before. And we still have a very long way to go, but I think it's been very encouraging for me to just see people who are willing to share on social media. We're seeing people who are donating and calling people to donate and just calling the church to be better. Um, And I just think that that's been really encouraging for me because the world is a very sad place right now, 
But I'm glad that we have so many Catholic examples of people who are like, okay, the world sucks, but here's what we can do. You know? Yeah. You mentioned uh, Bishop Mark Seitz in El Paso as one example. Uh, you've also, you had an amazing profile of uh, the Reverend Brian Massingale uh, mm-hmm. that came out the other week. Um, can you talk a little bit about how his voice has shaped this moment? Sure, sure. So Brian Massingale wrote this amazing book called Racial Justice in the Catholic Church in 2010. And when I started research for my book, that was the first book that I sat with. And I realized he's been doing this work for years. And he's been talking about how to make the church better. So that really helped me to kind of think about this moment. He gave me the rhetoric to really know how to challenge Catholics, but he also gave me, in my conversations with him, there are so many times where I'm like, leaders aren't doing this, bishops aren't doing this. And sitting with him, he every time we talked, he's like, look, bishops have to be better. But also the church, is not, the church isn't just made up of bishops and priests. It's made up of people like you and I who are the lit you know, lay Catholics like you, lay Catholics like the people in America, you guys, whatever. And these are the people who are doing the work. So I think he gave me the rhetoric to be able to take my criticisms a little further, but also made me realize, oh, the church is not just these institutional leaders that I've been criticizing for several years, which I think the criticism is valid. But his work really sort of highlighted a history of activism within the church that I hadn't been aware of. And I think that's been helping me to think about what Catholics should be doing in this moment. Yeah, I mean, I've been moved by your willingness and also Father Massengale and all these people who have been sort of just like out there giving these interviews. I mean, really just saying the things they've been saying for a long time. Um, if you want to hear from more from Father Massengale, uh, our colleague Michael Auckland did an interview with him on our YouTube channel. Um, so you can check over there to hear more from him. Um, I'm wondering, why do you think this moment, Olga, is different? That's a really good question. And it's one that I've been sitting with a lot within my own family and in my own friend group. I think a lot of it has to do with the pandemic. I think that these these anti-racism protests we're seeing are happening in the context of so many people, not just losing their jobs, losing insurance, filing for unemployment, but a lot of people have also lost relatives. And I think there's this collective anger among a lot of Americans. Uh, People are angry at this country. People are angry at not having resources to get them through this global pandemic. And I think a lot of that is fueling people to kind of use this protest as an outlet. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that like, oh my God, for the first time, a lot of people are realizing what a lot of black and brown Americans have known for a very long time, right? That the United States is built on a very unjust system. And I think the pandemic really brought that to the forefront of a lot of the minds of particularly white Americans, I think, that I'm seeing in this movement. And I think also just the instances that we're seeing of journalists and other white Americans who are getting involved in the fight and seeing their encounters with police officers, I think that's also adding to the fire that a lot of people are feeling. And and I think this is the reason why a lot of people are so much more comfortable now than they were six or seven years ago saying things like Black Lives Matter, you know? Yeah. So we haven't actually said the the initial spark for these protests. Were, that was the killing of George Floyd in um, Minneapolis on Memorial Day. You talk about the anger that that has inspired and spread across the nation. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit how your own personal reactions um, for to the killing and to what you've seen in the aftermath. Yeah, I think this is a the first instance of police brutality that we've seen 
surfaced on social media. This has been happening for years now. But I think the George Floyd, seeing George Floyd's death really struck me, not just because of the very obvious similarities to men in my family, men in my, men in, and other men in my life and other men and women in my life. But I think just the, there was something about that death that just felt especially cruel to, to me and to a lot of the people in my family. And I think for me, seeing, seeing like my, seeing, you know, seeing my fiance have to process that while we're both kind of stuck at home, we can't see our, we're not seeing our families as consistently as we would be during normal times. And just, it's been very, very hard to try to navigate that. I am doing a lot of writing and I'm doing a lot of speaking, but this, I talked about this last when during a conversation I had with Massingill last week, it's been very hard for me. I've been proactive about it from a professional standpoint, but from a personal point of view, it's been very, it's affected my faith life a lot. And I, to this day, I still haven't fully prayed with it and kind of sat with it. And I think I'm channeling all of that energy into just finishing this book, finishing my work, but it's been very hard to process on a spiritual level for me. And Enoch and I have been talking about that in ways to kind of fix that because he's, he's, he's been living with this reality as a black man in this country for 30 years. So he has a hope and a sort of, he's so connected to his faith that it's easier for him to be like, you know what, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But for me, it's been very, very hard. Like I have not been able to talk to God about it. I haven't been able to process it on, on a personal spiritual level. So that's definitely something I've been struggling with. And I'm, that was the few days after it, I was really struggling, but particularly this week, I thought it would get easier, but it's still something that I'm like, Oh my God, we really live in a world where a black man can be suffocated to death, you know? And, and what does that mean for us as a nation? I can't imagine how tough that has to be to try and separate the sort of your professional life and your, your personal one like that is, have there been, obviously this isn't the first time that you've had to, kind of navigate this have there been things that have been helpful either now or in the past for sort of being able to sit with this on a personal level oh yeah yeah absolutely one thing that is the immediate thing that i had to sit had to actually do was just stay off of twitter because when you're seeing when you're trying to process so much sadness being on social media and seeing other people processing sadness and also seeing other people sharing the video sharing other images um, so I had to make a very active effort to try. I failed, but I tried to sort of limit the amount of news consumption that I'm doing, but also just being able to have these conversations that I'm having with you guys, having it with my family, having it, especially with my dad. I talk a lot with my dad about the anti-blackness he faced in the Dominican Republic, the anti-blackness he's faced here, and just kind of sitting with my friends and family and just having the space to vent has been really, really helpful. Because I do the same amount of venting I do on Twitter, I do 10 times that amount of venting in my personal life. <laughs> so that's been really helpful. Yeah, you wrote a really great piece about um, about those conversations with your family uh, with regards to a, another a killing of a Dominican immigrant mm-hmm. back in 1992 um, for com. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seems like you are better than I am at having these conversations <laughs> with my family. So how do you, like, I can't, it's like hard for me to even imagine like going up to my parents and being like, so let's talk about Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter. And I, I know that's like, those are conversations we need right. to have. So I'm wondering what advice you have. <laughs> that is also a really great question because it's something that 
I struggle with a lot. I get very, my instinct is always to get extremely angry and start shouting at my relatives. I've had many infamous holidays where I'm just like, you're wrong. And this is why you need to listen to me because I'm a writer and I know this and that never works. So one thing, and this is actually something my sister has taught me because she's a teacher and has to has to have conversations with students who might not be talking about things in the right way because they're so young. So she's really helped me to be like, okay, well, what do you think about this movement? And just kind of framing it like, okay, tell me what you know about this movement. What are your thoughts on it? What do you know about it? Why do you think that way? And I think using that template and putting the onus on another person to explain how they feel about things, that has been really successful for me in talking to my family and talking to friends who might not be as willing to get involved in these conversations. And it's always just always remembering that you have to come from a place of love, right? Because it's easy for me to get mad at my uncle who's become a really radical pro-Trumper, but he's also my uncle. He's also someone who I love. So how do I navigate that? I'm like, okay, well, where are you getting this information? Who is telling you this? And here's what I'm finding and let's discuss. So I think just from a place of grace and love has been really helpful for me to just get the conversation started and just asking them, like, tell me what you know about this and let's start from there. I've noticed my own tendency to direct my frustration almost like horizontally without Mm -hmm. really trying to consider like, okay, where's someone else's, what's someone else's news consumption? Where are they Mm -hmm. getting their information from? What are, Mm -hmm. what are their elected officials telling them? What are, what are the leaders in their community telling them? And, you know, it's really easy for me to like, feel like I have a high ground in this bubble. Um, Mm -hmm. And instead of really like organizing and trying to listen with empathy, it's, it's easier to just retreat into this moral high ground of, you know, I've got this bubble in New York that's Mm -hmm. diverse. And one of the things I've struggled with um, is as a, as a white person trying to figure out my, I obviously have a responsibility to have these conversations with my white friends and family. But, it, but even as a as a journalist and as like a, a professional, like like to be blunt, like to ha- would it have been better for like Ashley and I to, to have had this conversation with one another instead of trying to invite you back on um, to sort of explain it for us? Do you know what I mean? Right, right, and and I, and I think that I think that's absolutely true, and I'm I, I'm very vocal about the onus needing to be on white people to do this work. But I also think, and this is something that I try to remind myself that helps me to have a lot more graces. We're also a Christian community, right? We're also Catholics who, if we existed in a secular bubble, we could be like, okay, it doesn't matter. We could be mean to each other. We control each other, but that's not actually going to help the conversation. And I think it's been helpful for me to remember, okay, this person could just be uninformed. They might not actually be an evil malicious person and what's my duty as a catholic like how can i help them be better how can i help them to be to live a more justice focused life right and i think sent reminding myself that as catholics we're called to be better that really helps me because zach i do the same thing i'm like i'm so much more informed than the rest of my family i know all of these things i'm a 30 year old journalist but that's wrong right like yes you have that knowledge and why don't you use that, right? Why don't you use our faith to kind of help people navigate these conversations? Because that's what I think the church can really contribute also. We can create these spaces that are formed in our faith to help people have these conversations. That was another piece you wrote uh, for America. How can Catholics help lead the fight against racism? Um, so what like, what, what does that look like practically? Um, having those 
in, in a Catholic context, having those conversations? Yeah. So I think a lot of, a lot of what I've been seeing, I've, I've seen people who are like, okay, I'm starting a Catholic book club and we're talking about police. We're talking about police brutality. We're talking about police abolition. We're talking about all of these topics that people are engaging with for the first time, but we're talking about it as Catholics. So I've seen book clubs, which I've seen people talking about book clubs, which I think are very helpful because a lot of people work that way, right? They want to sit with the text and analyze it. I've also been seeing people who are donating to organizations that are helping at the front line, which I think that's a direct, immediate way that we can help. Um, And I also just on social media, I see people calling each other out, demanding that other people be better. And I think those are really, really, really great things that people in the movement and people who have been organizing for years have been talking about for years. And I think engaging with works that help you to think about these issues more broadly, donating, right? That that's a very direct way. And I think also just having frank conversations like the three of us are having right now, right? Like we're all being very honest and giving each other the space to say, okay, these conversations are hard. How can we move from here? And I think those are three really, really great ways for people to get started in this, in this fight. I'm wondering what it's going to take to keep the momentum going. Um, because it seems like, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, but like, Oftentimes, like white white journalists at white publications or white parishes or any white institution will will maybe like treat this topic in good faith when it comes up when it comes up to a boiling point, um, and then it just becomes another side issue among a million things um, once the news cycle changes, which is often a week. Mm-hmm. This time it's longer, but right. um, like I was having a conversation with my wife about, and I was sort of comparing it to uh, like greenwashing in climate change where you have a bunch of brands make these Mm -hmm. sort of like decisions and initiatives that look good on paper for a PR boost, but haven't really moved any, anything forward. So I know I'm struggling with what do I need to do to, uh, uh, on a personal level and a professional level to like, make sure this doesn't just come up when it's convenient to talk about. Right. Right. And that's something I've been thinking about as well, because we've seen this like proliferation of corporations all of a sudden being like black lives matter we care about black lives and on the one hand i'm like okay this is just clearly a pr move why didn't you guys do this seven years ago but then you know trying to be less cynical i'm like okay well what does accountability look like going forward right and i think a lot of it zach you were talking about what the responsibility of white catholics and white journalists what their responsibility is in this movement and i think one thing you can think about is how am i going to hold places where I work, like even America, right? You guys have been doing a lot of great coverage and make sure this coverage continues when there are no longer any protests, right? Make sure that publications are highlighting the work that black and brown Americans do outside of talking about race, right? Because that's the thing right now, everyone's talking about solidarity. Everyone's talking about, oh, we support the Black Lives Matter movement. We support these protesters. But the second part of that conversation is what are we going to do to actually be inclusive? And I think a lot of that's going to be the difficult part of this phase, because I think that's going to require a lot of sacrifice from a lot of organizations, institutions that have been historically white. And I think they're going to have to start asking themselves, how do we create spaces? How do we create spaces for marginalized communities? And I think that's going to be really, really hard for people to go through. But I think that's the next step, right? Like, how do we make our organizations less white? How do we give people the space to talk about their experience? How do we give them the space to 
have a platform, you know? And I think, I think that is especially where white Catholics and white journalists and just white Americans in general can really work to hold each other accountable six months from now, a year from now, you know, because I think that's when the real work is going to start because it's really easy to put a hashtag on your timeline, right? But it's a lot harder to actually dismantle institutional oppression. So I think, I think that's, that's where the, I think that work is going to have to be done by a lot of white Americans in the next few months. But I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, I, I'm, I'm cynical on one hand, but I'm also seeing a lot of great work. And I think a lot of people are going to be naturally doing that. I mean, look at how, how many people on your timelines have you seen sharing images of like organizations that they're supporting or money that they're donating. And I think that is, that is a version of accountability. And I think asking ourselves what that accountability will look like six months from now is the work we should, the, the questions we should be asking ourselves right now. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about, you talk about this like fluttering between cynicism and hope. I've been thinking a lot about like where the evil spirit is in all of this, because it seems like there's so a lot of times these bring up difficult and uncomfortable conversations. And so it invites feelings of things like despair and apathy and confusion. And um, Mm -hmm. I've Mm -hmm. noticed myself needing to be pretty vigilant against the evil spirit telling me like, this person posted this thing, but what are they going to do tomorrow? Instead of being like, oh, maybe that's on me to actually try and hold this person accountable instead of just dismissing them like that. Right. 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 Yeah. My, I feel... I don't know, talking about social media, like I, I'm not someone who like often posts my opinions or like private life on Mm -hmm. social media. And I've found in this moment kind of being afraid to really talk publicly either on Twitter or or like posting on Instagram or even having conversations like this right now, because I, I'm afraid of having that hypocrisy in my own life. Like I like, like what, like, if I am posting like things to Instagram about Black Lives Matter, but then, you know, I'm not going to protest because like I'm afraid of the pandemic and want to be able to like hold my niece. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't know. I and I know it's not, you know, on you to <laughs> explain any of that away for me. But like I, I've I've struggled with that um, and trying to navigate like, um, you know, this tension between like, you know, being silent, you know, and the complicity that comes with that and, and the necessity for me to just try to listen and learn in this moment. Um, so that just kind of, I don't, that's not really a question, but (laughs) (laughs) no, but I, I, I think I honestly, I think that when we talk about creating spaces to have authentic conversations, this is what we're talking about, right? Like, I think it's so important that you are publicly being like, Oh, it, it is hard for me to say something because of all of the things you just listed. And I think that's okay because I think it's okay to acknowledge, and this is something, again, I'm going to keep refraining to Massingale because I'm obsessed with him, but this is something that I witnessed sitting in his classroom, right? All of these students don't know what they're talking about, but he, he gave them the space to be able to like, to be able to fluster their way through what they're trying to, through things that racial justice topics that they're encountering for the first time in his classroom, you know? And I think that it is okay to one acknowledge that discomfort like you just did, but I also think you don't have to discourage yourself just because you've never said anything before, right? Because a lot of people are speaking for the first time and I think that is we have to push against that feeling of like 
well, I haven't said anything before, so I shouldn't say anything because it's going to be viewed as hypocritical. No, I, I personally think that every first step is important, especially with white Americans. I think it's so important for people to be like, this is the first time I'm getting involved in this and I don't know what to do. Right. And I think actually it is totally fair to have to be like, you know, I want to get involved, but there's also a global pandemic happening. Right. I see that conversation in my family all the time. Enoch and I are like, okay, we want to go to a protest, but we also have elderly or parents who are high risk. And when we see them, we don't want to expose them to things. So we actively are like, okay, here are other ways to get involved, you know? And I think helping and being a part of this fight doesn't just mean protesting. And I think, I think it's so important to, for people, especially for listeners and other white Catholics to hear you openly talk about that discomfort, because I think that's a part of it, right? We have to be willing to be like, okay, this is weird. I'm sorry. I might say the wrong thing, but I want to be better. Right. And I think that's yeah, a valid that was first something step. that father Massingale said in his interview with Mike that just like allowing yourself to sit in that discomfort and like actually welcome and maybe pray mm-hmm. for that, for that discomfort and, and that the right. feeling of being overwhelmed because like, this is how a lot of other mm-hmm. people have been feeling for their entire lives. Yeah. I, yeah. And I, it, I just want to share something that's kind of, I, I'll, to interrupt you, Zach, like old times that I never actually did. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I actually had this moment where I was working that piece that you guys mentioned for Latino Rebels. The editor that I worked with, she was actually part of the inspiration for that piece, which, and I cited this in the piece. But in the original draft, I was so excited about sending it to her that I didn't actually cite that she inspired the piece. And she called me out on it. And at first, I was like, oh my God, I feel like such a crappy person. I feel like such an evil person because I'm erasing this dark-skinned Dominican woman's experience. And I reached out to her and I was like, hey, I'm really, really sorry for this. And we had a really honest conversation. And she was like, look, I'm, I might not have gone about this the right way, but like, I really felt this and I'm glad you did this. And that was a teaching moment for me. And I think if I had ignored that awkwardness, if I hadn't given in to like, okay, this needs to be a teaching moment. Let me sit with the fact that I messed up. And what does that look like, right? And now that's something that I'm going to carry with me for the rest of my life, for the rest of my career, which is why I'm always like, yes, sit in that discomfort and it's okay to mess up because I mess up all the time, <laughs> like literally all the time, you know, and I'm learning every day. So I think it's, I'm encouraged by hearing you talk like that, Ashley. Yeah, I feel like there's just such an opportunity for, this is like the work of discernment, right? Like there aren't, mm-hmm. there aren't easy answers to the big questions or the or the small like day-to-day decisions that we're making about how to respond to this. And I feel like this impetus that I experience sometimes for like wanting like a knee jerk reaction or wanting like a, an easy answer, um, is just not the work of, uh, that's not God's voice and figuring out how to listen to where I'm, where my next step is going to be in this, in this struggle, um, is a road that I can only get by talking to people like you guys. <laughs> right like these conversations have to happen no matter how awkward they are like it's okay to just sit with that discomfort because that is god at work right there yeah one other so we've kind of talked about the like just like the personal reactions to the tragedy of george floyd's death um and now like i was wondering if we could pivot to maybe kind of like the you know, reforms that people are, the reaction and the reforms that people are talking now about, because that's another area where I find myself being challenged. Like Olga, you know me, like I just like I'm temperamentally like 
small C conservative in that like I am suspicious of like big change. But in this moment, like it's obvious to even me that like incremental small reforms are not what we need because if that's what we needed, we wouldn't be in this place because people have been talking about that for 10 years or, um, and so like, you know, I'm, I'm like many people like hearing about, um, prison abolition and, and abolishing the police or defunding the police and like trying to like listen and learn before just like giving into my instinctual reaction of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Um, so I'm wondering like, how are you seeing those conversations happening? Like how, how are you hearing calls for abolition or defunding? Is that something you're, you're calling for? So yeah, that's a really good question, Ashley. I personally am in favor of abolishing law enforcement because everyone in my family, everyone in my friend group, we've never, we've never viewed police officers as agents of protection and serving communities. That's never been the reality that we have had. However, this is the first time that I am joining this conversation and there's a lot that I don't know. So I find myself feeling very overwhelmed by all of these policies and I find myself trying to understand what's a sad, what activists mean when they say police reform versus police abolition, right? And I think my one suggestion is to just sit with the text of women like Ruth Wilson Gilmore or Angela Davis, women, black women who have been doing this work and writing about this for years. So I would, if you're trying to understand what these policies mean or what we're, what we talk about when we say abolish the police, that's step one. Two, I'm really thinking on a personal level what it means to reimagine a society without policing and what the church can contribute to that conversation because the church has the tools to fully reimagine a world in which justice and equality exists for everyone. And I think I think that is something that I'm starting to see. And I'm really, really excited to see more Catholics get involved in this movement to abolish police officers. I know that you've been working on a book about uh, Black Lives Matter in the Catholic Church. Uh, Have I? <laughs> uh, what, Whoa. <laughs> what has it been like to try and update some of that for the current moment? Because I imagine that while... You know, a lot of the a lot of the things we're hearing are what Black Lives Matter has been calling for for a long time. It feels like it would be tough to to leave this aside and turn in a manuscript. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I knew that this process was going to be hard in general because I've never written a book and this is a huge project. But I didn't realize that as I was as I was writing the book, that I'd also be updating it with everything that's happening. And I think that's been something that's been very difficult for me because like I mentioned earlier, I'm struggling with all of this on a personal level, but then also trying to write about the church's complicity in the institution of racism while also trying to write about all of the black men and women who have been killed this year. It's definitely been a lot, but I'm, I'm so affirmed by people telling me, oh, I cannot wait to read your book, right? And anytime I get comments like that, I'm reminded, oh, this feels overwhelming and this is hard, but this is a contribution that you are making, not just to this moment in history, but also to the church, right? Because that's what I want this. I want this book to be a way for people to not just learn about the movement, right? But also, as she was mentioning, how these conversations with family can be difficult, right? I want this book to be able to give people a starting point and to be able to feel as if, after they read it, okay, now I'm equipped to be able to talk about this movement. Now I'm equipped to talk about what the church's role should be, right? Um, so I keep reminding myself, even though it's hard to try to 
be writing while actively editing because of the news. It's also, it feels great to be able to contribute and to be able to work on this product, on this book and know that people are going to engage with it at a time when the church and the world really need it, you know? Yeah. I mean, having worked with you for so long, I know we both understand how agonizing the writing process is. So I'm in awe of your ability to navigate um, just the Thank personal you. aspect of it, the professional um, and like everyone else. I can't wait to read your book. Uh, the last time we talked mm-hmm. to you, you were uh, back in our, the one where Olga says goodbye episode in December. Yes. You prophetically canonized uh, Black Lives Matter activists. Um, did I? You did. Honestly, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> so look at me. I know. <laughs> so it's hard to top that one in a moment like mm-hmm. that. But but we do want to give you another chance to canonize someone. If so, I'll I'll take your usual question and ask uh, <laughs> Olga if you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Awesome. So if I could canonize anyone. It would be Clarissa Brooks. She's this Black queer activist who I started following either end of 2019 or early 2020. And she's been someone who she's in her 20s. She's been organizing for years now. And she's also a writer. And she has really, really helped me to understand what it means to get involved in this movement. And she's also made me think more deeply about the role that we have as Catholics in this fight. She's on Twitter. She shares abolition texts with people and she answers questions, but she's also doing the work and she's writing and she's just been such an inspiration for me. And I would, I would canonize her Clarissa Brooks. All right. Well, St. Clarissa Brooks, uh, Olga, where can people find your work and support your work? There are people asking in the Facebook group where they can get the book already. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you, Zach. You, you pointed that out to me this week because I'm the worst person on Facebook but I have reached out to Orbis and they're going to have a page up at some point this year. And I will make sure to share that in the group. But for people who are interested in not just reading my articles, but also following along as I tweet in a really sassy, snarky way, <laughs> they can follow me at Olga M. Segura on Twitter. Well, Olga, we love you. Thank you so much for coming back to talk with us. It feels good to hear your voice. Thank you, guys. It was great being on here. And I love you guys. And I miss working with you all. So thank you. All right. Bye, Olga. Bye. Bye, guys. Now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to give a huge thank you to the new members of our Patreon community, Chandler Wilson, Julie Herkowitz, Jim McConnell, and Kathy McKinless. Hi, Mom. (laughs) Um, We cannot do this work without your support, so thank you for joining us. If you would like to support Jesuitical, you can go to patreon.com slash Media. And we also want to extend a huge thank you to this community. Uh, It feels like this is, I know, for me and Ashley, been a a true outlet for us to talk about some of the difficult and hard and important questions that we need to be asking uh, in our time. And so if you want to uh, be a part of those conversations, 
there are a number of ways you can support the show. You can forward this to someone else who you think uh, might appreciate it. Um, teach them how to download a podcast if they don't know how. Um, you can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. And you can send us your comments and questions by sending us an email at jesuitical at americamedia.org. All right, no consolations and desolations this week, so Ashley, get us out of here. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bringing faith to you and your inbox, our daily newsletter, America Today, keeps you informed and inspired with breaking news, award-winning analysis, and spiritual reflections. Subscribe to our newsletter for free at americamag.org newsletters.